welcome to another episode of Happy Little Accidents. So this week we're talking about how the government interacts with art, specifically looking at regulators and patrons. So the government engages with the arts in a variety of ways. And we can see this in, or we see this play out in two major roles. And this is in the title of patrons and regulators. It should also be noted that these roles can actually overlap and intertwine from time to time. So simply the government uh, regulates the artistic process. This uh, can be looked at in what I talked about in the previous episode, from government funding to legal issues like copyright and patents. And on the other side, there are patrons. If we look at the role of a patron in the government sense, there is uh, the understanding of financing said artwork. And that could be through funding, commission, and simply just purchasing. We see this with public art. If you look around any city or any government building, we can see purchasing on the wall that was bought or something that was specifically commissioned for the building. But I think the most interesting interaction is when the government won't fund art or acts as a patron due to, or doesn't act as a patron due to controversial issues or what they may consider something that can be controversial. We know that art can inspire or also even insult, right? Just like any type of expression. This can include political or religious convictions, ethical or social membership, aesthetic or uh, moral perception. We see the government uh, react to art or limiting expressions such as uh, libel legislation, privacy legislation, or rules of national security. This role relies on the government's behavior as a consumer, a patron, a censor, how they react to the um, work at hand. So the First Amendment in the United States restricts government censorship to a tight extent, unable to directly censor, quote, unquote, degenerate art. These cases usually resolve around the use of the American flag. We can see this in the 1974 case of Jenkins versus Georgia. So Georgia screened the picture in the Albany Theater. The local police served um, on January 13, 1972, the theater a search warrant and captured the film. The director of the theater, Mr. Jenkins, had been convicted of distribution and of obscene of, of material in March 1972. So the Supreme Court of Georgia affirmed his conviction. Then the U.S. Supreme Court on June 24th, 1974, found that the country had gone way too far in the classification of substance as obscene. So after this case, the Miller versus uh, California from 1973, uh, we see creative art appears completely exempt from obscenity laws uh, unless it includes portraying hardcore sexual behavior for its own sake or for commercial purposes. Now, this leads us into another interesting section of the topic, and that's looking at commissioned art versus work that is publicly purchased. So when I'm thinking about uh, public, publicly purchased art versus commissioned art, when governments buy work, the law doesn't play such a huge role in, their, in the, these case studies. Similar to the roles of patronage, the roles of artists has consistently changed over time. The way patrons operate directly influenced how they are created. So creating in terms of brainstorm, how the marketplace exists for artists alike. The term patron is consistent till this day. Uh, a patron is someone who supports a certain t- or cause or individually finances someone. The term patron of the arts continues today as a patronage is traditionally related to people and organizations that fund the artist. We have to look at what the patron of the arts historically has been seen 
and we have to understand the role itself. People of authority, such as kings and queens, have historically financed all kinds of visual artists to, um, you know, let's say, uh, furnish their homes, cities, and major buildings, such as cathedrals and town halls. So your financial stability was all but guaranteed if you were an artist and had a strong supporter. If you look at the Italian Renaissance, the patrons either seized on and commissioned painters or brought them entirely into their estates to offer uh, lodging, while artists responded on call for any artistic necessity. The artist might for years be financed by client, depending on the scope of a project. So the sponsorship stretched beyond persons. Artist groups or guilds were also asked to participate in projects as collectives. During this during this time in their lives, or at least in the beginning of their professional careers, most artists were guilders. As part of an organization, an artist did not only have to work in and learn from from a support structure, but they also had the opportunity to engage in groups. Sponsorship enhanced artists' safety and their worth. But patronage had not only created employment stability, but also shown and made artists in new ways remarkable. Some artists worked solely for their employers, while others were commissioned by new employers after their work became publicly available. Some of the most renowned painters of history have made their mark by being commissioned for their masterpieces. So, as the patronage system became more prevalent, the artists in society were more valued. Artists were now seen as inspired people, not only as craftsmen or masons, but mostly working for a job. The recognition of art and, as an aesthetic and the appreciation of the artists of the work still shapes how we see artists today as persons with special abilities, with merit, respect, admiration, or reward, right? These components um, really contribute to modern day patronage and how the concept is created and respected and sought out. The way an artist interacts with his customers today and in the past is essential in building repeated business and customer connections. This reflects prior patrons' engagement with their artists. The sponsorship was about the artist as much as about the boss, right? About the patron. Recall that your consumers are interested in not only your work, but they want to feel like they're a part of your work. We know in many of my prior episodes, I talk about the intimacy and the relationship between the patron and the artist or the client and the artist. Or the, there's two parties at play there, right? And so these connections may be created by establishing real ties with your uh, clients, customers, which result in ongoing business, right? And so that patron-artist previous partnership is involved in finding the perfect fit for an artist's career. And that is similar to our present-day understanding of this. The answers can develop a strategy for reaching your new audience. So if we're looking at how patronage plays out and from uh, let's say Italian Renaissance to present times, um, we're looking, if you're looking to connect, you know, your younger millennial buyers, are you looking to enter a niche market knowing you will be likely a patron of your work will help you reach that connection? How are you going about seeking these connections? Modern day patronage appears in public and corporate art. We have to understand that. I think because um, titles and understanding of uh, how it went about are different, the basic foundation of what the patron-artist relationship is extremely consistent. Just like in the past, people and corporations strive to bring art into um, or bring art in line with their own values, right? Their aesthetic, their ideals. We see that with corporate buildings, Bank of America, um, you know, Wells Fargo, any banking uh, company that has commissioned artwork, the art is supposed to align with their business, but not even just the art, but the artist, the artist's values, what the artist supports, the passive artist, what the artist strives to, you know, focus on in their work. So you have to think about would a business um, 
align with the public body of your work in terms of confronting your medium, your method, and your subject. So from previous artists, their supporters were selected, right? Now, by asking yourself these questions, you may utilize digital technologies to link to possible new patterns. We'll see, you know, influential families, cities, and organizations like churches were patrons of the past. Today's uh, patterns appear similar, just with minor variations, right? Your perspective um, employers, right, call them that, of more big-scale artwork and commissions include businesses, right, local government and other public bodies and corporate clients. We can see that in uh, just bigger, you know, even tech companies, Microsoft, Google, will see that when they're commissioning work, they want the artist to align with their values and the values that they've set at hand, which is extremely important to them. So modern patronage translate into all kinds of companies, even hotels and mural art commissions or walls filled with you know, different works. So your quote unquote guild may be an art curator or a gallery representing you in the case of corporate art. But like the great patronage of the past, you and your art reach is working for public and for the company's works at best, right? You're representing more than your art. Your art is speaking to a bigger crowd than what you always wanted it to. A crowd that maybe you weren't looking for, but a crowd that in some way your art represents. You're not only, not only does your work work well, but it creates repeated business for yourself through high quality work, through adhering to schedules and con contracts and communicating properly with your customers. And to add to these practices, personal connections and, you know, establishing, um, Something that's maybe not as traditional advertising, but you become your own advertisement. And we see that the relationship between the government and an artist is similar to the relationship between a new millennial buyer and a emerging artist, right? There's a consistency in terms of that relationship and the goals of that relationship and what is supposed to be a result of that relationship. And I think I keep saying relationship because the term relationship in the art world is key. It's probably the foundational most foundational aspect I can think of. Many things that happen in the art world are completely based on your vibe with someone, right? How you feel. And that really unfolds into the business aspect of art. So, I mean, mentioning that and you think about even repeated business, you have to be willing to talk about yourself as a performer when you're an artist, right? When we see artists interacting with, uh, you know, more official businesses, we're seeing people selected for to commission a new piece or, you know, to create a public sculpture for a city, um, you know, people are looking at what are you meeting? What is your criteria? What is, um, what is your chat about? If we look at specific artwork, we see, you know, viewpoints, abilities, personality, that really makes what someone wants to buy your art. And compared to the past, you know, we saw that someone would take an artist in and kind of mold them. Now we're looking for someone who might have a, a broader spectrum of what they're looking to portray and someone is crafting that to their own need for their own business and they crop it they share it and your voice continuously becomes transformed but the whole point is that it has to be an equal relationship where each person is contributing to that voice and that voice is equally heard but equally also beneficial so you may still have repeated business and that is obviously extremely common right but that's because of positive links of sponsorship of your art and your reach, your connections, and who you know, right? It may not be uh, the head of the cathedral, but it might be the CEO of a company. So I think some questions at this point that someone will ask themselves is how do how does economics define art, right? What's the criteria? 
Why do individuals confront institutions, organizations, and groups of repre representatives? And how does the art and society really regulate that supply and demand? And what is that supply and demand? Because if you walk into, let's say, um, a hotel, what does that art represent? How does that you know, interact with their consumer base? How does that interact with the customers they have walking through those hallways? And then what restrictions prevent, prevent artists from being wanted, especially, you know, with our society ever changing and social cues? How does that interact with the artist's work? So art obviously includes uh, media, you know, artistic um, and visual arts in Western culture. And they are establishing a distinct and unmistakable human behavior domain. And we know that art is a form of expression, right? Social expression, deep expression, emotional expression. And so the arts, meanwhile, are part of a wider cultural sector, such as architecture, crafts, um, cultural heritage, you know, languages. The industry of the fine arts is the art of modern art, and it consists of three main areas, right? We see fine art, and we know that fine art is professional, you know, art for art's sake, you know, the knowledge for knowledge's sake or knowledge for knowing, and it's the, you know, basis for peer research and science. But often fine arts dismisses other forms of art like recorded music, books, movies, commercials, art channels. But if we actually compare this to these channels, when we see um, a Tide Pod commercial, we see the music playing, that music in some capacity aligns with them, but not just the lyrics, not just the beat, but the artists themselves, the person creating that music, their history, what they represent, what charities they support. So this goes deeper into who you are and what you're representing. So when uh, we see fine arts are given out through commercial outlets, and it's fine arts really becomes, you know, commercial, right? The primary like organizational form of art becomes profitable. And we know that um, in kind of, I guess, the smallest factor that the more amateur an artist is, there seems to be, you know, a freer palette to what they go about. Because when your art starts getting in the hands of people, right, collectors, galleries, auction houses, permanent collections, museums, you're representing more, right? It's talking about your society. It's more than you. And remember that the artist represents, you know, people around them, their culture, their um, do's and don'ts. But I think at this point, we actually need to take a step back and understand why it's important to know about patrons, right? So let's think about the huge bronze uh, statue of St. Matthew. It was commissioned by a banking guild, a previously grain house turned into a shrine in the center of Florence. And not only did they engage Lorenzo Ghiberti, uh, the super in-demand sculptor to make it, but also set out a contract for the job. And this had to be a huge and large creation of the sculpture confronting the guild located at the same spot. They also intended to cast it from only two parts, which is extremely hard to do. And it's all reflection of the banker's own cast or position, right? And it also would be Ghiberti's reputation, scale, and technical skill to see how it could be casted. So with artists, we frequently emphasize on the artist, right? The artist who produced the art in Renaissance. But really, in Renaissance art, we really focused on the development of the work, the patron, the person of the group financing the like end goal, the end result. We forgot that artists simply don't just produce art for art's sake of art 
of art history or most of history, but we saw they were producing for employers. They were given a picture. They were given a complicated process, an architectural creation. They were given cost, materials, scale, location, subject matter of work, art, and it was often controlled by the patron. So the ever-changing understanding of art is really changing in how we understand this patron-artist relationship, but the dynamics just took a little bit of a shift. So knowledge of patronage also shows how artists utilized art as a means of conveying their views, right? Being able to be given a task, but also um, transform it in the capacity where you were able to create something that was in your likeliness and so as the patrons. We see this with the fostering of careers, and the patrons were more strong in social and economic terms than the artists who served them. Government served the role of the facilitator, like we see in the United States, and promotes fine arts through you know, donor-led tax spending. And we see the function of the facilitator is rooted in three American traditions, church, government division, competitive market economy, and private philanthropy, which has been the main source of support for the arts before and after taxation, which is really important to know. So if you look at 1965, the NEA was founded and the State Arts Council shortly came right after that. The creation of those national and state art councils really would change the role of U.S. government as patrons. So two-thirds of public funding for fine art is still provided via uh, fiscal expenses. And the government decides how much assistance it should offer, but not which groups are artists. So it breaks down to a board of trustees nominated by the government is made up of the board. After the government has established trustees, they're expected, like a blind trustee, to perform their responsibilities regardless of the everyday interest of the ruling party. Then the council typically decides on the opinion of the professional artist who operates under a peer review system. Now, we can see that this really does echo um, when we're looking at you know, Italian art and guilds and patrons, but we see that there is these elements that shift because of cultural social standing. So we can see in art councils or state-run art councils that they really encourage the creative process, but they also seek to promote standards of artistic excellence at the professional level. Patron states' political dynamics have tended to be evolutionary, adapting to the creative community's shifting form and art styles. The artistic and creative companies' economic position rely on, the, on combining the uh, financial appeal with the uh, differentiators and then even the preferences of specific donors, individual donors, group donors, and even the subsidies obtained from art councils. Promoting artistic quality is frequently seen to promote elitism. And this is with regard to art created and served by the public. Support for creative brilliance may therefore lead to art which the public in general or its democratically elected leaders cannot access or enjoy. We can see this as, or we can see a really big example as Britain and in their patron state. And this is looked at in the education, music, and art committees that have been established to raise uh, morality during the Blitz uh, government, during Blitz, and the government exhibition of patrons during the Second World War. And it was founded in Scotland, Wales, and in Northern Ireland by the Arts Council of Britain and its sibling organizations after the war. The function of patrons developed through the English um, aristocratic history and their support of artists. And this goes back to what I said before with talking about the Italian Renaissance and then modern day artists. And, you know, just to give a little anecdote, we do see a lot of art collectors today who are championing um, artists. And I always think it takes, it takes one person. And genuinely in the art field, it takes exactly one person. 
in every other career life, um, especially in corporate America, you have to kind of climb up the ladder, but this ladder has maybe 12 people sitting on each step. You have to make it through each step. But in the art world, you need one person to believe in you, one person with financial backing, with influential ties, museum ties, a curator, an upcoming uh, writer, a New York Times writer, one piece of influential uh contribution can really change the trajectory of your career. Um, but we also know that the art councils have had controversies about work that's not acceptable to people in general. We actually saw this occur in 1983 with the South Bank Marine built by David Motch, a resident who uh, was burned out and uh, used uh, tires. The art council actually paid 50,000 pounds for this piece. So we know that artists produce um, as, you know, foundational members of society and not in a funnel. Uh, even if the most outlier artist creates something, they're reflecting some part of society that we're tapping into. The art has played the important part in politics from the Italian Renaissance to modern day America. And the two frequently have a complex connection. While government supported the arts uh, politics and the arts frequently had adverse relationships with government authorities, we see that the uh, balance of our societies really relied on that level playing field. The uh, Catholic Roman Church, a self-conscious um, political force, commissioned the paintings and sculptures on religious themes throughout the Middle Ages. Now artists today, from painters and sculptors to singers, uh, directors, really rely less on government as a supporting tool, but the patronage continues through federal and state-run institutions like the NEA. So we're seeing that the influential aspect that the government or kings and queens or dukes have played is still being played out, but just in different roles, different names. With time, artists use their art to comment on or highlight specific problems to become politically more confrontational. And a lot of times, art is to disrupt. I feel like artists are disruptors. You know, regardless of what they're pointing out, they're disrupting. So... Although the biggest creative triumphs are determined by business rather than politic, uh, than politically considered, the policy drivers of a capitalist market economy unavoidably include the arts and the political process. This is something that we cannot deny when we're looking at the state of art. So in conclusion, we have to understand that the government and art are related, that you can exist in your own, but in our society where we are governed by uh, rules, by social constructs, and you as a uh, citizen of the society interacts with different elements, the public funding and programs from um, competitions to public museums, state funding, is always going to interact with artists on some sort of level. The question is, where does this go bad? We have to think about that. And I think that's what I want people to take away. It's not about saying that the government's controlling art, right? The government is not necessarily controlling art, but there is a relationship. We have to understand there's a relationship with all of the art world, relationship with the artist and the patron, the artist and the canvas, the artist and the material, the artist and the atmosphere, the artist and the climate. And this is something that's a part of the art world. But understanding that the government isn't a negative force, but an integral part is extremely important understanding artists and what their um, trajectory of their work is. And before you go, make sure you check out my website, kyramarera.info, for more information and seeing my latest editorials. Check out my YouTube channel, Confessions of a Gallerina, and check out my Instagram, Confessions of a Gallerina, to see my daily art adventures.